Come, Watson. The game is afoot. We invite you to enter this portal of strange and unimaginable. I simply ask that you suspend your judgment and expand your mind in the vastness of the unknown. Come witness the wonder that is our reality. The truth is out there, and so am I. Wife of a Demon Hunter, extraordinary tales of all things paranormal. Hello, my name is Dorinda Stewart, and I am the Wife of a Demon Hunter. Hello, my next guest had a corporate background. She encountered premonitions which were dramatic and traumatic, causing her to seek answers and give up her job in the corporate world to become a psychic investigator. Now she's an international speaker, author, and exploring the mysterious world of the metaphysics. And she's a Scottish medium. Welcome, Anne. Um, this is Anne Traherne. Welcome, Anne. Thanks for being here with me. Thank you, Dorlinda. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, um, to speak to your listeners. So you went from the material business world to the immaterial psychic world. What was the catalyst? Well, the catalyst for that was, was a premonition. Um, so as you've already um, said in your introduction, my background was in the corporate world, in banking and finance. And I was very much a career woman. I was driven, focused, um, a workaholic. 24-7 and successful. So, you know, I managed to get right to the top in that industry, dare I say, crashing through many glass ceilings as a woman in a, in a man's world. But um, that world changed dramatically and, and traumatically, as you say, because of premonitions and, and one pre premonition in particular. And that was the Dunblane massacre. Now, I understand that some of your readers, sorry, readers, some of your listeners may not have heard of Dunblane and the Dunblane massacre. Um, and it was a shooting in a school, a school shooting where a number of children and their teachers uh, were shot and killed. Um, and I'm going to take this opportunity because I know the majority of your listeners are American, Darlinda, and I do work in America uh, myself as well. And whenever I get that opportunity to speak to an American audience, I say, now listen, America, Scotland only ever had one school shooting and this was it. And we've changed our gun laws after that and there has never been another one. So I shall leave that with you to consider. Going back to the premonitions, um, I, I now know from my psychic investigation work that premonitions tend to happen in the hypnagogic and the hypnopopic state. So that's usually either when you're falling asleep at night or when you're just wakening up in the morning. And it's that in-between stage between um, being wide awake and, and fast asleep that in-between state where we know that you are most receptive to, and let's just say information or communication from the non-material world. That's usually, or in dream state, that's usually when premonitions happen, but not with me. My premonitions happened when I was busy, when I was working, or indeed when I was driving my car. And um, the first premonition happened when I was driving my car. And as a senior manager, I was responsible for the whole branch network. So I used to drive around the country visiting um, our branches. And so I was a customer driving at speed on the motorway. And that's when I got my first flash of this horrific image. And over the weeks, um, that image became more and more detailed and more and more frequent until it all seemed to join up as if there was almost a videotape playing in my head. And as well as the videotape in my head, there was this tremendous urgency, uh, a driving desire to do something or tell someone. And so I did. 
I, I actually confided in a colleague, uh, not a friend, but a colleague who just happened to be in our head office building when I walked in one day, having had the videotape playing in my head. And I told her that I had had this vision of this gunman um, who was um, going about the place, uh, this building, shooting people. Um, now, I actually swore her to secrecy because she wanted firstly to tell the police, which is a logical thing to do, but I couldn't tell where it was. I knew it was going to happen in Scotland. I couldn't tell you where, so I knew I didn't have enough information for the police. But she then decided it would be a good idea to tell our board of directors, our executive management. And my career was pretty hard fought and won um, at that stage. And I could see it just disappearing over the horizon as she decided she would have to tell our executive management that one of their senior managers was, was having these visions of gunmen. Um, so I did swear her to secrecy because um, I don't think I really ha expected anything to happen. Once I had told her this urgency to do something or tell someone was gone and the vision stopped and I just went back to work as normal and I just didn't expect anything more. I just ignored it and carried on regardless until a few days later when of course I heard the tragic news that the shooting had actually taken place as I had described it. And I was quite literally traumatised by it. I, I, I felt responsible. I felt guilty. I had had all this information beforehand and now people, children, were dead. And um, I, I felt it was all my fault. I, I felt I should have been able to do something to stop it and I didn't. I also knew that the colleague who I had confided in also felt complicit because obviously she also knew before the event and I subsequently found out that she had indeed reported this to a general manager, uh, one of the board directors. So now there were three of us who knew this information beforehand and I have never spoken to them since because I left. I felt that um, that information would, would get out sooner or later and my position would become untenable because how can you manage a whole branch network, manage the managers, mm -hmm. if it became known that their manager had had that sort of experience. So that was what prompted the change in my life and to give up that career and start to investigate and find out what on earth went on there and what was happening and what can you do about it or can you do anything about it so all of these things were going on in my mind and that was the catalyst that changed my life from being um, a career woman in banking and finance to being um, a psychical investigator um, a medium uh, and, and, and now an author um, and, and still investigating and still trying to um, find my way through this etheric world that has an intelligence all of its own. That's true, that's true. So <clears throat> one of the premonitions that you had was uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was best known for Sherlock Holmes and other best-selling books. Uh, least known as a doctor who became an author and even wrote a book on spiritualism called The History of Spiritualism. You had an unexpected, you had an unexpected relationship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, uh -huh. that was really intriguing because um, after I stopped working and, and started my investigations and and trying really to find out um, what was this that had happened to me and can you develop it, can you control it? Because to me, logically, that information had to be purposeful. There had to be right. a meaning to it. And so 
there started my search and also trying to develop myself to see if it was something that I could um, control apart from anything else. So um, I joined various classes and workshops and conferences to try and develop whatever it was at that point that was happening with me. Um, and my mediumship started to, to develop. Um, I then realised I had had mediumship as a child and parked it long ago and it sort of came back again. But as is my want, things were never happening fast enough for me. So I set up my own home circle, my own little group, to just to develop and practice some more. And I had actually set up two different groups, one after the other. Um, and each one sort of folded and, and um, resulted in a talking shop rather than a development exercise, which is what I had intended it to be. So I was becoming a bit disillusioned and thinking, this is a waste of time, this isn't working, just give it all up and you know, go back to the day job or whatever. And the, the voice that spoke to me in my head by that point said to me, try, try, try again. And third time lucky. And this time we'll tell you who to get in your group. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But okay, well, if you're going to tell me who I get in my new group, on you go then. So I sort of challenged whoever it was that was communicating with me to tell me who I was to get in my group. Um, and, and they did. So they started showing me pictures. I'm, I'm predominantly clairvoyant, uh, so work with pictures. They started showing me pictures of who I was to get in my group, even people I hadn't met before, didn't know their name, didn't know where to find them they dropped in this information into my head and I set about finding the people that uh, were to form this new group. And no sooner had I put the phone down on the last person, um, and I then had five people plus myself, six of us, than I heard it's going to be a physical group. Now, I can tell you, Darlinda, I was never so disappointed in my life because I didn't want to do physical mediumship. I wanted to do mental mediumship. I wanted to be on the platform. And suddenly I was hearing it's going to be a physical group. It's going to be physical mediumship. And I had read all the books about um, what happened in Victorian times of, of um, ectoplasm oozing out of every orifice imaginable and all these weird pictures. And I thought, I, I didn't want to do any of that. <laughs> I decided just to keep it quiet, not to tell anyone. And apart from anything else, I didn't know how to do physical mediumship. So if it was going to be a physical group and there was going to be physical mediumship, they would have to do it themselves because I didn't know what to do. So we decided just to get together. We hired a, a room, uh, a space where we could sit together once a week and just sit in, sit in the silence and wait and see what happened. And it was during that period, me with still with my mental mediumship, that I became aware of a man communicating with me. And you'll know, Darlinda, the same as I, that if you're working with mediumship, mental mediumship, normally you'll get a sense of someone coming through from the other world. You'll say to the recipient mm -hmm. or the audience, depending on if it's public or private, you know, well, I've got a man here. And I can remember describing him saying, well, I've got a man here, he's a big man, well-built, elderly, got a moustache, looks like a grandfather to me. And then expecting some of my group members to say, oh, well, he could be my grandfather. Right. And then just go on and get some more information. But as I passed that information out to my group, all these blank faces were shaking their heads saying, is not for me, I don't know who that is, we don't understand him. So I sent him away, I thought, well, I've got that wrong, sent him away. Well, I ended up sending this man away week after week after week. <laughs> he, kept, he kept coming through and each week he came with another piece of information and each each week I tried to give him to my group. And, and they, to be fair to them, were saying to me, I think he's for you, Anne, I think he's coming through for you. And I was saying, no, I don't recognize that man either. And I have to tell you, one week, 
the man who turned out to be Arthur Conan Doyle said to me, you should recognize me. Because <laughs> so, I'm famous. That's right. <laughs> modesty was not his strong point. That's right. So I should recognize him. And, and at that point, you know, I knew, as you've said in the introduction, I knew Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. I even knew he had written uh, The History of Spiritualism. There's two volumes of that book, and I had read it. Um, so I knew that, but I could not recognise him in a lineup. I couldn't have picked him out and said, oh, that's Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, so I didn't, rec- didn't recognise this man that was communicating with me. Um, and slowly but surely, he dropped in clues week after week after week as to his identity until eventually uh, we had a, a librarian in our group, and not just any librarian, she was actually a librarian in one of the Edinburgh universities. So she recognised all the clues and said, I think it's Arthur Doyle. And of course, that turned out to be the case. Now, I do know it would be easy for me just to sit here and say and claim to be communicating with Arthur Doyle. And I was always, throughout all of my work in this field, I have kept my Uh, questioning and objective and logical head-on to say is this really him or or is it something else and so I was always looking for confirmation and so you'll you'll find um, throughout the book that I've written about this um, Arthur and me um, throughout the book I always look for confirmation or corroboration that the person who claims to be um, Arthur Doyle or or an event claims to have taken place. I also I always look for it to be corroborated. Um, so that was how he he manifested himself in our group quite early on, and took us through a whole learning exercise of learning um, and experiencing various um, psychical phenomena, including physical mediumship. And very quickly after that, he informed us that we had to find somewhere else to sit. We had to find another building. And that probably takes me on to another subject. I'm maybe jumping ahead of you, Darlinda. But but that's okay. Um, well, I was just going to say, you know, you were probably gobsmacked by it all. Um, so here you are, this Scottish medium carrying out Doyle's post-humorous uh, uh, plan. Um, how much pushback did you get from debunkers? I know your group probably were was on board with it, but what about the public in general? Well, the public in general, in fact, not, not only the public in general, no one knew this group existed. Okay. So as well as he actually, um, you know, came through initially and, and made it known that it was he who was communicating and he also told us um, the purpose of the group and he told us that it was 160 years since the Fox sisters in New York yes mm-hmm. um, in New York heard the the rapping on the on the wall of the, the log cabin and realized spirit was communicating with them and he said and nothing's changed people still have not accepted that there is this life after death, there is this other world, this intelligent other world that can be uh, communicated with and indeed is interacting with our physical world um, regularly. And he said little progress has been made um, since then, so we're starting again. He said we're starting over again and trying to get this message over again. And unflatteringly, he he told us that um, he was starting again with average, ordinary people, people that others could relate to. So in the past, they had, they had tried the young girls in a log cabin and uh, you know um, the fairly um, uh, uneducated at, at one end of the spectrum to the very academic like Swedenborg at the other end of the spectrum, and still the message hasn't gone through. So he told me <laughs> we. We have gone for average, ordinary, <laughs> others can identify with, just you, um, another feel for that. I mean, for example, my, my group uh, then consisted of a policeman, a social worker, a 
psychiatric nurse, and that's really handy when you're dealing with this. Right. System. A librarian that I've already referred to from one of the Edinburgh universities, a restaurateur, and me, a banker. So a quite a broad spectrum of um, um, professions there that covers you know, the a spread of the general public. So that's that's what he wanted. But he also told me that they hadn't been chosen for their psychic or their mediumistic abilities, although that was a, a prerequisite. He told me that they had been chosen for their ability to communicate and to speak. Ah. And he said that he was going to take us through this learning curve and um, eventually we would be called on to speak about it like this. But up until that point, everything would be kept, should be kept confidential. No one was to know about it. And he was going to take us through this learning exercise until the time came to communicate out to the, to the wider world. And one of the means of communication as well was that I was to write a book too. So um, that was how he started his, his communication. Well, this, you did create a center for Arthur Conan Doyle, the Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Center. Um, my understanding is a beautiful Victorian building. Um, so what are some of the secrets? I, it has a beautiful staircase. I see the pictures of the beautiful staircase. And I think that's kind of in the, in the cover of your book, right? That, the, the little staircase yes. that goes up. Um, so what kind of secrets does that building hold? I mean, why that particular building for this? Um, did that have anything to do with why you chose that building was um, Sir Arthur um, Conan Doyle? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, and that's a question that I asked time and time again. And hopefully I'm going to answer that in my second book, which is yet to be published. Okay. I'm doing an edit and a rewrite of that one just now. But... Um, when he started communicating with me and my group, um, as I mentioned, he he said quite quickly, you have to find another building, you have to find somewhere else to sit. Now, the physical phenomenon happened quite quickly in our group as well, which was surprising. But just as he was dropping clues into his own identity, he started dropping clues into this building that we were to find. Now, initially, we just accepted that as we've to find somewhere else to sit and there were some other reasons why we why he might have decided we were to find somewhere else to sit but the clues came over a five-year period and me and my group were becoming very frustrated with them because we just wanted to get on with it and right. you know i was thinking if we have to find another building, just tell us where it is and we'll go there and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll sit there. And he would say, enigmatically, he would say things like, you know, well, you'll know it when you find it. And, and I was thinking, oh, you know, just that's not good enough for me. I just need to know and I'll get on with things. Um, so he started dropping clues in and I walked into a building for a completely other, different purpose entirely with a colleague, a colleague um, who was looking to purchase a building for, for another purpose and he asked me to, to go with him and I walked into this, this building at the west end of Edinburgh and I was only through the large front door and this energy hit me like a, like a wrecking ball. I thought, oh! And I knew instantly this was the building that Arthur Pondo had been telling us about for five years previously. Wow. And all the clues that he had dropped in all added up in that building to to make sense. So I knew immediately that this was the building that he had wanted us um, to get. And then I had to set about convincing my colleague that he should actually buy this building, even although he didn't know why, <laughs> why I wanted right. him to have um, and. Again, this corroboration that you're talking about, um, the, the building is a, a magnificent example of a Victorian townhouse. It was built originally as a, as a family home, all six floors of it. Um, I'm sure it's just like yours, Dorlinda, or mine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> six 
works of a family home and it's a huge building on a corner site with all these floors and it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and most buildings of this size and type have long since been turned into apartments in edinburgh but this one remains oh wow this one is intact what kind of things go on in the center what do you guys do there yeah so we're a spiritual center for the benefit of the mind body spirit so we do things like yoga, tai chi, spiritual development. Uh, we have we have mediumship classes and um, meditation classes. We have a spiritualist church in the building, but we also want to be home to the arts. So we do art and music, and of course, creative writing. The Arthur Centre must do creative writing. Sure. Something that was close to my heart and and how I started out in my journey. Um, was um, psychical investigation. So I wanted to ensure that we had a psychical investigation unit in the building and also a lecture programme. So um, where, where invited academics, scientists, researchers, um, anyone involved in consciousness studies or post-materialism or a related subject had a platform to speak and again get the message out to the public so i don't just expect people to believe me if you don't believe me believe them so you know i'll bring in uh, university professors researchers academics to talk on um, a related subject i called it my choose the talk because it was a bit um, less formal than a lecture program and that continues still um so, so i i actually um retired Last year, in January 2021, I handed over the reins to Professor Lance Button that I could concentrate on writing my second book. And he has continued uh, with great gusto the Tuesday talks. I started them um, just doing them once a month, and he does them weekly now. So Ooh. that's worth checking out. Yeah. So, so where exactly is this building located? It's in it's in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's, so it's in Edinburgh, Scotland. So that's the hometown of Arthur Conan Doyle. So he wanted it named after him in his hometown, and it's in Edinburgh's West End. So very easy to get to. Edinburgh has a a, a good international airport. Um, so uh, so we often have students who come and maybe taking a workshop, taking a course, and then. A holiday, spend some time in Edinburgh or indeed in Scotland. Um, so we have also always attracted a very international um, uh, students um, crowd coming to the Arthur Conan Doyle Centre, as well as people from Edinburgh and Scotland. So so that's good, and as well as our, our mediums as well come from all over the world as well, and our speakers. So you do training there. So you do uh, psychological training. Um, so what exactly, um, how do you guys go about that? I know that there's some sort of certificate that you get at the end. So how do you go about doing the training with that? Yes, well, so there's the Arthur Conan Doyle Centre and the Spiritualist Church, both doing training in their own way. Um, so the Spiritualist Church would, um, so the, the, the NSU, so um, National Spiritualist Union, uh, they train mediums and go through a certificated uh, process and a diploma of speaking and um, and and uh, messages and communication. So you can get a certificate and a diploma for philosophy, for actually speaking, um, public speaking on subject, and also on mediumship. So that's one thing. Um, and that's through the Spiritualist National Union, through the church. The Arthur Conan Doyle Centre um, works through uh, both themselves and through a number of mediums. So um, you mentioned uh, Lisa Williams to me off record. Yeah. She, she has been at the centre. Um, James Van Prague's been at the centre. Uh, Tony Stockwell, Gordon Smith. There's a whole number of mediums who come to the centre to deliver their type of training in mediumship. So I wanted the centre to be open to all and not simply you know a narrow field of what we thought uh, the the mediumistic and psychical development should should be i wanted it open to a number of uh, teachers and uh, professionals 
tend to do it that way. So each will teach in a different in a different way. Well, but psychic ability is different, right? I mean, there's like different levels of psychic ability. Um, would you agree with that statement? Uh, yes, yes, different types. And, and you refer to psychic ability. So I would make a distinction between psychic and mediumistic. Um, but a lot of this gets hung up on um, uh, on the on the definition on the definition of what you would call psychic, what you would call mediumistic. I mean, for example, I would call psychic um, something that happens, it's very much of this world. So, um, so I could tune into you and find out all about Darlinda and never speak to anyone in the spirit world at all. I'm just, I'm just tuning into your aura and your energy mm -hmm. and what's going on around you. And things like psychometry, and, and and auras and other bits and pieces are all around um, the physical world. Right. Mediumship. This is purely my definition. Sure. <laughs> have their own definition. Mediumship um, is communication with the the other world, with yeah. the af with people, with dead people. Right. You talk to dead people. Is that what you're trying to say? We talk to dead people. We talk to dead people, we talk to dead people but, but occasionally we make an exception and talk to the living as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how I would distinguish between psychic and mediumistic. But um, I think for the public, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here they call it mediums or psychics. They, you know. Um, yeah. But I do, I do, you know, I always thought mediumship was talking to, you know, uh, someone who was passed on. And then, um, you know, like the psychic ability is almost like a mind reading sort of thing. You know, you can kind of pick up some of the things that are around that person with their aura and all that as well. Yeah. So, so you do um, psychic investigations. And so are you talking about ghost hunting? Is that what you do? You're a ghost hunter? Is that... <laughs> In, in common power ones, yes, I suppose that's correct, yes. So tell us um, some of your ghost hunting adventures or your psychic investigation adventures. What was your favorite oh. one <laughs> or your scariest <laughs> one? <laughs> what, was my, what was my favorite one? Um, I, think, I think my favorite ones are the ones that involve children. Ah, Because mm -hmm. I always find that children are give the best evidence because they're not trying to hide anything, they're just telling you exactly how it is. Whereas most adults are concerned that people won't believe them, uh, they do, they'll keep it to themselves, um, or they'll try and filter what they're really telling you. Whereas children just just mm. come out and just tell you how it is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, I can remember um, a couple of examples, but one that I'll tell you about where I was called out um, by the SPR, that's the Scottish Society of Psychical Research, um, at the time with my fellow investigator to, they had got a call from someone in Edinburgh, uh, where I live, to say that they were concerned about their uh, little girl who was seeing something in her room. And so I was delegated that job to go and check it out. So I went to this house in Edinburgh, which was a lovely house, very nice, and uh, went in there and the woman was quite um, very concerned about her, her daughter, her two-year-old daughter. Ooh, my. Mm -hmm. And she was probably two and a half coming up for three. Um, uh, but she was she was two year old, and and she said she's talking about the man that stands at the bottom of her bed, and she said she was she was very concerned because she had two daughters. The other one was mm, four or five, that sort of age group, and she said I remember my elder daughter talking about the same thing, talking about the man that stood at the end of her bed. And I dismissed that and told her it was nonsense and she was making it up. And and she forgot about it and we've not heard of it until my two-year-old, nearly three-year-old, has now started saying the same thing that has prompted the five-year-old 
to 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 add into this and and so the two of them are now talking about the man that stands at the end of the bed so she said i'm really concerned about this my my husband thinks it's a lot of nonsense but they're both saying the same thing and you know can you help and so i asked if i could see them they were upstairs in their bedroom and i went upstairs took the mum with me of course and as i walked into the room the two of them were jumping up and down on their beds one of them had a little tutu on the, the, the little <laughs> one tutu on. she was jumping up in bed and they were they were they were all excited and um i said to the mother just you stand just outside the door so she stood in the corridor so she could see in or see me but they couldn't see her um so i said i said you know your mum's told me that there's a man that comes and stands at the end of your bed and uh one of them said oh yes yes and the little one said it's the grandpa and i said oh he's a grandpa and um, the older one said yes yes i think he's a grandpa he looks like a grandpa and i said oh and and you know what what is he like and what is he doing and things like that and and the younger one said oh he's just looking at us and of course i glanced to the the mom and she's yeah she she's aghast because she thinks there's there's a ghost or a man standing at the bottom bed looking at her small children and i said and why is he looking at you what what is he doing and they said um oh he's just lonely and he likes to see us play and he watches us play and and i said and are you frightened by this man and they said no no he's like a grandpa and he just likes he just likes being when we're playing and when we're laughing and um i said okay that's that's fine that's okay and I, I could tell the mother was um not entirely convinced about what was happening um and i said to the children you know maybe just you know not talk to the man and and you know just let him go just let him do his his own thing and he needs to go somewhere else um, and you can say goodbye to him but he needs to go somewhere else and they went okay <laughs> so they weren't at all concerned in the least so i i i tuned in to this man and he was the man who had been in that house up until this couple bought it from him he had died in the house mm -hmm. he was just still there he was just still there in his house and watching these little girls in his bedroom jumping up and down mm -hmm. on the bed um and i think enjoying their laughter and sure their, and um and i said to him you know you need to tell me something because this woman isn't convinced that you're really here so you're gonna have to give me and i i always look for corroboration or confirmation right. and um he told me that um the previous night the curtain there was a big wooden curtain rail with these rings on it and lovely drapes and um he said last night the curtain rail fell off the wall and the curtains fell down and they've put them back up again and i said okay so i thanked him for that and and did some explanation about you know not your house anymore and right moving off, not. and i was able to say to the woman and her husband who had um, arrived home you know back down in the living room i i told him that you know he's the he's the previous resident he's still here um We've asked him to move on. You know, I think he understands that now. Um, but he tells me that your curtain pole fell off the wall last night. So of course they were aghast at that, and they got the confirmation that um, there was no other way I could have known that. Sure. It was back on the wall, looking lovely. But that was the confirmation. But again, coming back to children, children um, just accept everything, and they see it quite plainly, and. Um, they're the best witnesses, I would say. So do you think, like, when children talk about their uh, uh, invisible friends or things like that, do you think it's ghosts that they're talking about or talking to? You know, they have imaginary yes. friends, you know, so you think yeah, that... Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, uh, I, I was called out to an another little girl who was, um, I think she was 11, um, and she was seeing people 
all the time. She she was so open to it. Mm -hmm. And her mother spoke about walking along the pavement, the sidewalk, and um, and this girl kept getting off the pavement and walking in the road and then going back on the pavement again. And I asked, I said, why are you doing that? And she said, I don't like walking through them. <laughs> I like, I like yeah. walking through them. So I always like to give them some space. Um, <laughs> You know, there's 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 things like that that a child will see. Yeah. Um, and, um, and and she said her take on it was, I mean, the little girl was, I think there's somebody for there's someone for everyone in this life, and they walk with them. That was her. Yeah. So yeah. Like seeing a guide, or some might talk about guardian angels or whatever, but she said there's someone that walks with everyone, and uh, that's why she was jumping off uh. the pavement. Didn't walk through. The, the, the invisible I have to agree with her I don't like to walk through them either <laughs> when we're in a ghost situation it makes this they're cold so it's kind of it's kind of an interesting energy when you walk through a spirit well box. you'll know this yourself there Linda more than more than me yes you're you're uh, you're the ghost hunter the the, 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 demon, the hunter. demon hunter yeah yeah but you yeah. know demons uh, the the demons you know we had had a conversation about that but see the the ghosts have been they've had a soul they walk they, you know they there's someone yeah. that actually walked the earth and died the demonic yes. are not that there's there's something that's never been alive and so it's a yeah. di really different energy so yeah yes yeah, I yeah. would agree with that yeah yes. but I'd rather work with children than the demonic so <laughs> any day so, so, so would I. Yeah, that's so would I. right that's right so let's get back to um the premonition that you had about the shooting and, and the guilt that you had felt with that. So what would you recommend or how, how do you um, tell someone um, what to do with that information? Because, and no one was really around you to really help you um, navigate through that premonition and then finding out that it was true. How would you, with the training that you have and the knowledge that you have, how would you help someone who had something like that happen to them, how would you get them through that kind of an event? <laughs> well, I'm maybe the wrong person to ask about that because um, the talking about the Dunglee massacre still impacts on me sure. yet. Um, it was so traumatic. And um, I, th I think, I think the, when I replay the, the events, it comes back in my head about the guilt that I felt, um, I sought out Professor Archie Roy of, at, at that time, he was Emeritus Professor of Astronomy at Glasgow University and through a whole series of coincidences, which is another topic we can talk about another day, <laughs> but um, a, a whole series of coincidence or synchronicity or whatever you want to call it. Um, I managed to get myself in front of uh, Professor Archie Roy and he spoke about, he, he said, it's like an early warning signal um, and, and premonitions are always about pending doom and disaster. Mm -hmm. They're good things. And he said, it's like an early warning signal that goes out and those that are sensitive enough can pick it up or pick up elements of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, the question from that was, well, why? And can you, can you stop it or can you prevent it? And I remember him saying to me, well, that's the $64 million question. Right. You know, can you prevent it or can you stop it? And I think as we develop in the future, I think, I think, I think we've actually forgotten a lot of our psychic ability, our innate ability to sense things. And I think that comes through at various times and with various people. And I also think you can develop that or fine tune it a bit further. And I think we will develop that as humans as we progress in the future so that maybe in the future we can prevent things. However, um, to answer your question about um, what people should do about it, there's various places you can report premonitions to or you can simply Email is a great way of doing it because it's it's date stamped and time stamped and you send it to someone or some authority for them to hold it prior to the event and um, then if it doesn't happen, you, you're not embarrassed, you haven't done anything. Right, right. There's that in terms of 
of, of corroborating that you have actually had the premonition. But in terms of it being um, a traumatic event, um, I'm still right, I'm right, right. Still, I still have the effect of it. I'm, I, the more I speak about it, I think because I buried it deep in the psyche, um, because I didn't want to speak about it, and um, I had to find a way of coping with this guilt and fear and responsibility. I've buried it deep inside me. And I still need to exercise that. Um, but for most people, premonitions are about you know a distant event that they're not always involved with themselves, um, like the twin towers, um, like planes going down or um, train crashes or these sorts of things. A lot of people um, get premonitions about. And I think it's important to record these events so that eventually us <clears throat> and the researchers can gather all this information together and try and make some some sense of it. For me, I sort of dabbled and experimented myself and I got subsequent premonitions that I I believe I intervened in. Now again you know that's irony comes into this here because if you receive a premonition and then you do something to prevent it or change the outcome then did you get the premonition in the first place right right so right it becomes a sort of vicious circle right. um but for me i am um i am still investigating it i'm still working with it um i think the other thing i would say about that is i think there are variations on this um, this ability so uh, remote viewing is one of them right and that was developed uh, well, not developed but it was it was um, taken on board by uh, the, the uh, secret service in the right. u.s yes and, you know in the cold war trying to develop instead of sending spies over to Russia or whatever, if, if someone can project their mind over there right. and see what's happening, you know, this psychic ability, this other sense, this other world is out there and it needs much more work and development and focus, I would say. And so one of, that's one of the reasons, you know, the Arthur and Doyle Centre is there to help people like me, uh, you know, people like me who didn't know what to do, where to go, who to speak to because you know i i i was in a corporate world of finance right and right um, and suddenly this was completely alien to me so right we need more organizations and more centers and, for people to go to yeah yes for and sure more people like you Derlinda, who bring it to the attention um of people through podcasts and uh, and speaking and interviews and uh, and things like that what what i would say as well is on that point you asked me earlier you know why that building and and you know why there and why did you choose it well i i didn't choose it but you know i'm asking myself why that building too and you know why could we not have been there earlier and um you know i was told that we had to wait for it it wasn't ready and we had to, we had to wait for it but one of the purposes of that building and my mission is to get the, get communication out to the wider public. So I felt very quickly when Arthur Conan Doyle started communicating and telling us that the people who had been chosen were chosen for their ability to communicate. I feel my mission is to get the message over to people that this, this etheric world is actually real, it's intelligent, and it interacts with our, our world in many different ways. And so my job is one of communication, and so too is the African Adult Centre. Get this message out to the wider public, this thing's real, have the academics, the researchers speak about it, and have the general public in to develop, test, um, investigate for themselves, um, and I, I feel Arthur Conan Doyle is still trying to get his message out to the wider world that there is an afterlife 
and I, I don't think I'm special in that. I think he will use any means within his um, capability to get that message over, and I am just one of them. And uh, I fulfilled his mission to set up a centre in his name in Edinburgh, the Arthur Centre, with that aim too, to get this message over to the general public that um, it's real. It's not, um, we're not all wired to the moon. Um, most of us have had a professional uh, right. career. And this is something that has come to our attention and it needs further investigation, further development and further learning. Well, thank you, Anne, for, um, you know, create, you know, uh, talking with us today and creating the Arthur Conan Doyle Center. I believe that using, you know, the Arthur Conan Doyle, um, he is an icon not only over in Europe, but over here in the United States as well. So that brings a lot of people together. So that is a really good thing that he did this. And um, you are going to be writing another book. Your second book is going to be coming out. Um, yeah. So, um, again, um, Anne Traherne wrote uh, um, off Arthur and Me. And it's a must-have book for any spiritual explorer. It's available at Amazon and at the Sir Conan Doyle Center in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, thank you again, Anne, for talking to me today. It was very fascinating. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, being psychic, it does come with some rules, you know. I mean, not rules, but... Um, you know, it's responsibilities. You know, we feel very responsible for what the messages that we're giving people. So just know that we don't take it lightly. So, but um, absolutely, this absolutely. is thank right. Thank you for having me. Director. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and thank you to your listeners for listening. Yeah, thank you. This is Dorinda Stewart, wife of a demon hunter. Until next time, thank you.